Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Triangulation, episode 432, recorded February 10th, 2023. Daniel Suarez, Critical Mass. Listeners of this program get an ad-free version if they're members of Club Twit. $7 a month gives you ad-free versions of all of our shows, plus membership in the Club Twit Discord, a great clubhouse for Twit listeners. And finally, the Twit Plus feed with shows like Stacy's Book Club, The Untitled Linux Show, The Giz Fizz, and more. Go to twit.tv slash club twit. And thanks for your support. It's time for Triangulation, the show where we get together with some of the most interesting people in the world and talk about stuff. And, you know, we only do triangulation now when it's somebody really, really great. We say, well, we got to bring the show back. And this is somebody really, really great. On his fifth visit to our studios, uh, Daniel Suarez has a new book and the world rejoices. Hey, Daniel. Oh, it's so great to see you. Always great to see you. Yeah, it's been Um, ages. You said this is your seventh novel. Seventh novel. Wow. Yeah. It seems like a lot of work. Do you work. have it down now? You got it pretty down pretty good? Uh, it's it's a uh, a pleasant torture every time. <laughs> because I do so much research. I, I don't know why I do this to myself, but yeah. uh, you know, for a book like Critical Mass, I thought, okay, let's see. All I have to do for this story is marshal a better grasp of orbital mechanics, some rocket <laughs> science, some chemistry. No problem. Medicine. You got your slide Politics, rule. economics, uh, <laughs> blockchain. I don't know why I do yeah, blockchain's that blockchain's even here. Yeah. So- uh, Daniel uh, first came to us with his book that was just kind of a breakout shock because he nobody Daniel who and he wrote a book called Demon that just blew everybody's minds. Yeah. I mean, incredible. Followed up with Freedom TM again, incredible. And you keep doing it again and again. This is the second book of a planned trilogy, trilogy right? Yeah, that's correct. So, if you haven't read Delta V yet, stop, pause <laughs> the tape. And read it, because there might be some spoilers. For yeah, it. mild spoilers. Mild spoilers. I think Delta V, even if you kind of knew what was going to happen, would still yeah. be like, wow. The journey is worthwhile. Yeah, the journey is yeah. well worth it. And now, this it's much of the same cast. We won't say yep. who's missing. Yep. Some people are missing. Much of the same cast for the new one, Critical Mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third one, are you, you're already writing it, right? I am already in the conception and structuring phase for that. Uh, no title yet. For that, oh, so okay. Still, conceiving. same kind of idea, though. We're talking about the same. Yep, same notions. world, same, and a continuation. Okay. Do you? Uh, what do you do? Do you put stuff on the wall and trust and put strings in between the uh, the things? How do you? So the analog versus the digital. I do tend to go analog yeah. in, in terms of uh, index cards and things like that for structuring. Yeah, and it's not because I dislike digital tools. It's that I find when I'm using, you know, like a computer to organize things, I spend too much time trying to deal with the equipment and settings. That's right. And if I just grab paper and then I do the, you know, the bold picture and rearrange things, rearrange things, then eventually it makes it into a computer once, once I've got the main structure down. The other problem with computers, I don't think they've solved this yet, is it's, it's, it's hidden. It's like <laughs> you take all those notes and those cards are now kind of disappeared onto a hard drive. That's exactly right. You need it all up on a You want to see board, it all, right? And that's what I do. I take big boards so you do. So I, and then I walk in, and I tend to color code various threads in the story. Yeah. Because the story will have an A, B, C thread, these sub-stories and themes. And then I color code them so that I can see pacing-wise. So that, unfortunately, 
We'll get back to critical mass in a moment. But <laughs> now I'm really intrigued by the process of this. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Um, we've talked before that, you, you know, you got your storytelling start as a dungeon master. That's right. Oh, there is no better uh, forge uh, for creating writers because you get that really instant and very honest feedback from your players uh, when, you're, when you're sucking. At, yeah. at it's, you know, they tend to express their opinions. <laughs> You can't kill that dwarf. Yeah, with that's a, right. Number 23, I don't even, I then, never played. And then there's so. always the rules lawyers, you know, the people right. who are going. And then and there's also the, the people right. who yeah. take the legendary object and start to do things with it, like, you know, forcing, holding open a door yeah. and, no. you know, weird can't things. do that. But it's good. So it tends, it, it trained me to think a story through all angles and pacing and character. All of that stuff is important. And, and this is particularly hard. When you're dealing with complex topics, my stories tend to be about ideas. Right. And so you have to make the, those ideas, you know, the new technologies and the big, the big change, whether that's a gene, genetic editing like change agent or lethally autonomous robotic weapons and kill decision. Those are going to be the big overriding themes and elements. And then within that, you have to make the, the characters function. You have to make them interesting enough, but you can't dedicate as many pages as you might to, like I said, a parlor drama or something like that. It's a complicated... It is. Interact, interlocking machine that you're building. And I solve this by writing about twice as much book as I need. <laughs> and and no I, wonder you, no wonder it, it's painful. Well, yeah. And, and all of that still requires a great deal of research. You don't know exactly which parts are going to make that final right. edit. I like to refer to it as scaffolding. That so is going to be stepped away when, you, when you're done with the book. It's about half. You don't, sometimes programmers will write a pseudo program, pseudo code that's not going to ever run. Yeah, but may, it may in fact be incorrect. Sure, but it gives you some ideas. Proof of concept. Yeah, do you do that before you've studied the science that you're writing about, or do you wait until you know what you're gonna, you know the subject? All right, let's zoom out. The way I start a story, I accept because I know this about myself that I'm going to spend about a third of the time structuring and doing character. Interesting. And then I'm going to spend a third of the time of of writing a book, doing the research for that. And that's going to be a feedback loop to the structure. Because as I discover new things, the story and the structure might change. So it's kind of like coding, isn't it? It is. It's iterative. Yeah. So uh, it's agile. Agile soft, uh, <laughs> uh, writing. Do you have scrums with Michelle and the stand-ups? Uh, and- <laughs> no. You know, it's interesting. I will occasionally discuss, like, does this sound crazy? But generally, it's an insular process. I really... I think people know that I go dark on social yeah. media for a lot yeah. of the time. I'll just sort of uh, which is wise at disappear. any time, to be honest with you. But okay, and and again, I enjoy <laughs> inter- interacting with readers, especially yeah. online. It's just it tends to fracture my concentration. So especially when I'm trying to really understand something that because you know, I have an English literature degree. I mean, I, I worked in computer software development and, and management for 17 years, so I'm very familiar with technology, but. That largely came out of English literature in the sense that I found myself in the early 90s, you know how the internet started to take off. I'd always been interested in in software encoding, and I just had an affinity for it. But I also was good at communicating between programmers and management because I could code fairly well, and I could help them understand why something was taking so long and so on. Because, you know, otherwise I, I remember there was a senior a programmer who was dealing with a a CEO and was asked how long something was going to take. And he said, well, how long does it take to catch a fish? (laughs) That's not, that's a a good answer, but not the one the manager wanted, but not the one the CEO wants to hear. So 
I'll have to remember that. <laughs> that's very good. Um, that's an unusual skill to both have the left brain and the right brain functioning at the same time. I seem know? to have it. And, yeah, and that's, that's a good. good skill. Yeah, and it's been, it's been fascinating because when I do a deep dive on technology and I've done some really serious coding uh, for pre-production planning systems and I, I won't go into it. it it's no, no, a lot of you're, in a, you're in a friendly zone here. It's a lot of logistics software for big companies. Yeah. And that's really what became, D- Damon grew out of that was uh, I realized at one point that some of the software that I'd written had a great deal of power in the world that ships and trains and trucks would not move unless my software told it to. And I thought, oh my gosh, I don't think anybody fully realizes, you know, especially as you're going into Y2K remediation in the year 2000, there was a lot of coding done at the last minute to fix things. And there was a time when a multi-billion dollar company, which will will remain unnamed, had me doing the positive pay file and the check writing system, all of this stuff. And it was just me because a lot of other consultants had, had, you, know, missed, you weren't doing it in COBOL, I hope. Uh, no, we were pulling it out of things like that, Fortran Holy and COBOL. Cow. So old legacy systems. That was an interesting time. And, you know, it's funny because nothing bad happened. No. In the year 2000. But that, but none none of us knew how much had gone on prior to that to yes. keep nothing bad happening. And I think a Unix one is coming up in 2038. 2038. Well, yeah. that's what I thought was interesting about the year of critical mass. <laughs> I was wondering... Because it's you don't mention it, but it's kind of an inside because joke. Because it's going it? to be dealt with. It's going to be fine. <laughs> I had a I had a relative who was you know hoarding cigarettes, thinking that was going to be the currency after the year two thousand. Mm, mm-hmm. So I, we I was like, no, everything's going to be fine. We were all on call on December thirty first, nineteen ninety nine, in case the world ended and we have to That's rush right. in and do this. Just in <laughs> another That's bridge it. has collapsed, <laughs> uh, and no, and nothing. ATMs continued working. Right. Everything. I survive thanks to people like now. Now That's you really right. can appreciate the diligent Daniel. toiling. <laughs> Digi- of people like me, he learned his diligent diligent toiling in <laughs> in uh, service of all of us. That's right. It's interesting. So you were when you were a literature major. Do you think you would be writing other kinds of things? Not genre. Forgive me for calling this genre fiction, no, but that's the term. No, right, no insult taken. It yeah. is. I want it to be accessible. I want mainstream readers to understand it. I suppose we. You know, those who, people who want to be novelists always entertain the idea that they're going to write the great the next, American novel. Great American novel, exactly. It'll be a farewell to arms or something like that. But what happened is, as I went out into the world and started to engage with technology, it just fascinated me. Yeah. And I did not set out to become a sci fi writer. It, many of my books take place in the present day or the mm-hmm. very near future have, mm-hmm. or have become present day. Yeah, that's then. one thing unusual about this. Yeah. This is kind of more distant than usual. I, that's another challenge that I somehow set for myself, which is I think I'm going to write a book about the near future so that I'll be around when it happens and then I'll have to answer. You know, I, many that people, is bold. I, it's <laughs> ir- irrationally stupid maybe, but I have been fortunate that I haven't been too far off. Um, for example. No, you've. We've seen in Ukraine a lot of drone warfare. Yeah. Basically, whatever's going on kill in the decision. news, kill yeah. decision. Whatever's going on in the news will tend to fill up my inbox uh, occasionally. Like, oh, have you seen this? Have you seen that? Uh, CRISPR was like that with uh, genetic yep. editing, yep. and then a lot of things happening with cyber war with Damon and yep. Chat GPT, and yep. and on and on. So it's it's interesting. So far, been fortunate. <laughs> and, but one of the good things about that is not a lot of people are writing that near term no. because it is a risky thing it's to scary. do. It requires a great deal of research and then a little prognostication. Uh, so I was going to actually it was one of the things I wanted to ask you about is the risk of getting the rug pulled in the middle of the novel. Yes. 
Um, you talk about, uh, <laughs> and we've talked about this with Delta V, but one of the the protagonist of Delta V is a billionaire who lives on an, who has an island That's who right. uh, invests in space. Oh, I like to say it's this way: it's a he is a charismatic billionaire yeah. who has a. Uh, a difficult relationship with facts and the truth. And so it's total yes. fiction. <laughs> totally fiction. Right. Uh, and then uh, you have, there's blockchain in this uh, new one. And then blo- uh, the, when you started writing it, I'm sure the general attitude towards blockchain was much more positive. Oh, that's than it is you're now. absolutely right. Yeah. There were a couple of companies in fact, who got on into the news uh, due to some malfeasance. Yes. Uh, yeah. You so might've heard about that. You might've yes. heard about it, uh, <laughs> FTX and others, but see, that's again, I look at it this way that, uh, when I wrote Damon that had cryptocurrency in it somewhat before Bitcoin appeared. And I've always been fascinated by that digital currency yeah. and, and proof of work and now proof of stake, but whatever news cycle is going on, whatever is happening with cryptocurrency and blockchain in particular, smart contracts, and especially NFTs. There are NFTs in this. And of course, yes. you know, there's almost That's an allergic really, reaction. Yeah. But what I like to say is, you know, if you take a look at blockchain as a, a triple entry ledger, this, I'm convinced. That's a good and, way to And I would it. lean a, a upon my track record for prognostication. And it's not the primary purpose of what I'm writing about, but I try to get things right. I try to peek into the future a little bit and I try to get it right. And there is something important there with blockchain. Right. The idea of not just a double entry ledger, but a triple entry where it's transparent and everyone can see it. And then you add the frontier of space to it. Because obviously we do not want to be moving around physical elements because that requires propellant and delta V. So it's going to be digital. You do want it to be uh, uh, cryptographically secure because it's going to be Mm -hmm. the very definition of an untrusted environment. For example, who is in charge in space? Uh, so if you need to build an economy out there, you need trustless exchange. And so blockchain and, and crypto and NFTs are just, it's almost like they're made just in time for that. Like somebody was conceiving of this on Earth. The other thing to consider is that energy is not a problem out in space, especially right. near Earth. There is 1,348 watts per square meter of solar solar power. And then there could be nuclear power. You don't have to worry about contaminating the environment because it's an irradiated vacuum. Um, so... I think it's a perfect environment to experiment with blockchain. And there's the added element you can base the, uh, this digital currency on new resources and energy. So it's, it's something that's intrinsically valuable, thus the NFT. So a little different than just trusting that, you know, some exchange is not screwing around. You know, if you're out in space and you can actually verify, you have a third party verify that there's energy or resources tied to that new currency – it has inherent value. You say it a couple of times in this book. Space is a no BS zone. Yes. Yes. Space, deep space will test us and it will cure us of humanity's worst propensities for bullshit. Oh, am I allowed to uh, say it? <laughs> our worst propensities for bullshit. I'm glad I checked first. Who said that? That was Nathan Joyce. That was uh, the billionaire Nathan Joyce. Insisting, so really, Daniel Suarez said that. No, no. I always, I am always careful to say that I am not my characters. It's funny because I'll have people write me and be angry at something that a character said, and then angry at somebody else will be angry that another character said, and they're having an argument. It's like, I can't be both I'm not, people. I'm not there. It's just them. And the other they do thing, come, come take a life of their own, don't they? They do. And the other thing That's is, I'd say that Nathan Joyce is a complicated character in that 
he is, I feel, right about something. This is he's, the billionaire. He's yeah. the billionaire who sets this all in motion. And, but and by, by the way, way, I could lay this even out. Even though he said space is a no BS zone, he was a font of BS. So he was an expert in BS. <laughs> he knew he knew all about it. But all he was Earth-based. So that's true. That's okay. That's out true. in space, you cannot... No, it's only truth and facts that are going to keep you alive. It's a hostile environment. It's a very hostile environment. You can't trick your way through it. You can't bluff. Can't bluff space. space. And so you have to rely on each other regardless of what your personal belief system is. If if you take that helmet off, you're dead, yeah. no matter what you believe, and if you run out of oxygen. I should probably quickly do a synopsis of Critical Mass. Do you want me to do that, or is that too... Will it spoil it for people? No, no. This is a... A, a spoiler-free? A spoiler-free. Time-tested. All right. Well, it's it's not spoiler free for Delta V. So if you haven't read Delta V, close your ears momentarily. This is uh, we're talking to Daniel. We're talking Suarez. about Critical Mass. His new book, Critical Mass, just came out January thirty first. I was on the pre order list, even though you had sent me that. very kindly sent me a few copies, which immediately disappeared as John and everybody <laughs> said, "Oh, the new Daniel Suarez is out." And uh, this is the second following in the uh, trilogy, following Delta V. That's right. The third one to come. Although you can read it standalone. So. Yeah, actually, because you, you kind of recap the, right. where we are, why we're here so right. far. I, I don't recommend it, but you can. The thing that was so cool about Delta V, it was about asteroid mining. That's right. Not about going to Mars, no. per se. No, it or, wasn't. Or I, I guess eventually the moon would kind of be part of it. But the idea of mining resources outside of the, you know, the Delta V to get out of the Earth's atmosphere is so high and so costly that if you could do stuff in space, it saves you a lot of money. It yeah. makes it a lot more possible. So we continue on uh, after some calamitous occurrences. Yes. Oh, that, that's well said. That's good. No spoilers there. <laughs> Calamity. Yeah. <It's> space. <laughs> well, the key thing about that is we don't want to have to lift millions of tons uh, out of Earth's deep gravity well into space because that would require thousands of launches, even with Starship. You know, you're talking about dumping thousands and thousands of tons of CO2 and methane high in the atmosphere. In situ resource utilization, that is utilizing resources in space, would be the way to obtain millions and billions of tons of working mass, and, which is really what is referred to in the title critical mass. And it turns out there's a lot out there. There is. As a matter of fact, uh, in the first book, the asteroid is Ryugu. Which is a real asteroid. Real asteroid. And the trajectory in the in the book Delta V is, is also a real trajectory. It's December 13th, 2032, I think. I heard you uh, on This Week in Space. Great interview. If people want more Daniel Suarez. It was so fun. Previous episode of This Week in Space with Rod Pyle and uh, Tarek Malik. Talking about why you chose Ryugu yeah. and because of the launch window being just right for the timing of the novel. That's right. And <laughs> and also there is a part of me that wants to inspire people who may... We could do this. You, well, that's the key thing. There really is no reason why Delta V and critical mass have to remain fiction. That's the thing that I'm trying to get across to people is many of these technologies were, were uh, conceived of and some of them built in prototype form back in the 1970s and 1980s. And, which is remarkable, but of course that was part of the Cold War space race. Now, this book takes place in the late 2030s. 2038, to be 2038, exact. 2038, so Unix people. We've solved the problem. Take a breath. Goodness. That, that problem is, is solved. <laughs> but uh, the asteroid miners from the first book, Delta V, have returned to Earth, and they have to use the resources they placed in lunar orbit, and, and they've returned there to rescue two colleagues they left behind at Ryugu. And by the time they've come back, there's a new space race on between China and the United States. 
and they also have designs on those asteroid resources as well as part of that competition, and so do several billionaires. So that is the source of the conflict. Is in it this kind point. of a gold mine in the, in the Lagrange point? Just float, or is it in orbit? Floating Any around. two body uh, orbital system will have five Lagrange points, right. and these are uh, areas of uh, they differ a little between each other, but they're essentially um, gravitational. E- equal gravitational attraction zone. So if you place something at any of these five points, it will largely stay there. That's where James Webb is. Yes, exactly. It is at the L1 point, I be, mm-hmm. believe, between the sun and the earth. Mm-hmm. But again, any two-body system. He's at L2? Oh, is it L2? Okay, sorry. <laughs> My gosh. Don't say By the way, I love James Webb. we got Webb. somebody who's a fan, huge fan. Jammer B, John Slanina is running the board. It needs to shade. Of course it does. He's, he's, See, as I'm, I'm on the road. He's he's one of the people who stole the book as soon as it came in. <laughs> but I <laughs> he loves your stuff, as we all. Know. And by the way, uh, the L one and the L two points of the Earth Moon are very important in this book. Yes. So that's much closer, and it's about cislunar space. And when I say that, that really just means the celestial neighborhood of the Earth and the Moon. It's I think sixty thousand kilometers past the Moon and all the way past the other side of Earth. So being able to avail ourselves of near Earth asteroids bootstrap ourselves. And the, the benefit of going to an asteroid like Ryugu is you don't have to go back into a gravity well like the moon. You can go and at certain key points like December 13th, 2032, you can rendezvous with a near-Earth asteroid like Ryugu. It's 450 million metric tons of material, you know, nickel, iron, uh, titanium, ammonia, all sorts of Billions things. of dollars worth yes. of stuff. I think it's $90 billion worth of the Amazing. recent estimate. But you can bring that back much more easily because you don't have to bring it out of a deep gravity well. And, of course, in, in the book Delta V, they show how they process it and bring it back. And that's, that plants the seed for the second book yeah. because, of course, that becomes a very sought-after thing. You've got a gold mine floating yes. around. Actually, yes. It's probably even more worthwhile than a gold yeah. mine because they're trying to bootstrap it into billions and then trillions of dollars. But it's really it's what those resources allow you to do in space. And really what I focus on in this book is how going to space – will help us save Earth and civilization and everyone on it. Because we are dealing with, of course, climate change, with uh, uh, species extinction, resource depletion, growing conflict. There is, because of the constellations of low-Earth satellites going into orbit, if there is a conflict between first world powers, one of the first things that will happen is they will try to knock out each other's satellites. With so many satellites in orbit, that debris expanding can cause a cascade and create a shroud of, of debris in low Earth orbit. It's called a Kessler syndrome that could prevent us from going to orbit safely at all for generations. So there's a real... Not to mention shut out the sun. The sun and, yeah. And uh, if it's that bad, we, we have serious problems. <laughs> but even if it's just paint flecks, a paint fleck going at yeah. you know tens of thousands yeah. of miles an hour will really ruin We're your day. We're seeing that with a web getting bombarded exactly. with rocks. Yeah, it's dangerous out there. Um. Is that the synopsis? Is that sufficient? That is sufficient. Okay. One of the things you do in this, which is great, is uh, you actually let Nathan Joyce tell the larger story. The master our, plan. The master plan of our future. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was uh, that was really interesting because it sounds to me, that one is, in, I almost hear Daniel Suarez <laughs> saying, folks, this is what we need to do. Yeah, I am. I definitely believe that. And. It is also, all I would say is that there is an element of risk here 
that is quite large, that people will be going into danger and that we have to recalibrate what we perceive as risk when it comes to space. And I say that because of the risk of doing nothing, I think is greater or moving too slowly uh, for all the reasons that I mentioned uh, just recently. You know, we have billions and billions of people who require for the, for their futures. I mean, there's three billion people, some odd, who are living at bare subsistence level, and they want to improve their condition for themselves and their children. And if everyone on Earth starts living at a first world level, we are really going to poison the Earth. But it's also unfair that only some people... So the idea of availing ourselves of new energy and resources in space, bringing that to bear to Earth through... You, you pointed at one of the solar power satellites, sending microwave energy, clean microwave energy down to Earth. Now, people see that and they immediately see a death ray. And I would, <laughs> I would point out that we're talking 100 watts per square meter, maybe 200, what you could stand in that beam. It's using microwave. It's using microwaves. And this, again, is a technology that has been around, was conceived of way back in the 70s. We use this technology for cellular communications and, you know, Birds fly through the beam all the time. Right. I understand why people are concerned and they see those, those big solar power satellites and they think it's a death ray. But to that, I would say everything is visible in space. And if you put this large four or five kilometer wide solar power satellite in space, everybody's going to see it. And if you start to change it and turn it into a weapon, it's going to be very apparent. And people will have lots to say about it. And it is also unique, uniquely vulnerable. So, so this solves a big problem, which is energy. Energy, clean energy that does not further heat up the earth. Because again, you're, you're intercepting solar power that really is heading towards the earth you're anyway. just focusing it. You're focusing it at a certain frequency and sending it down to a receiver called a rectenna, which can absorb it. Now, this is where I think a lot of people say, yeah, but the conversions, converting that energy into a micro microwaves up in space and then sending it down, then reconverting it back into the grid. By the time you're done, it's 9% efficient. But so I, what? <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's one thing, especially if there's chaos on the planet. Right. right? If let's say there's a mass migration or wildfires or mass, right. economic uh, collapse, this is in space. So it will be invulnerable to that. But the other good thing is you're sending that clean energy wherever it's needed. And you can move these rect rectennas easily. You don't even necessarily them. have to move them yeah. anywhere in the hemisphere beneath it. Let's say in geosynchronous orbit, you can beam. That energy, you can adjust. Oh, you can it. aim the satellite. You can adjust it without any moving parts. You can direct it to various, or you oh. can bifurcate it. You can split it wow. and send it to different cities. And the rectennas are very cheap to build. And like I said, you could even stand in the beam and you will not get fried. And one more little thing is that you can actually grow crops underneath it. You could put this above pasture. Most land. of the sun gets through. Most of the, the sun gets through. So, yeah. uh, what a cool technology. We've heard, as you said, we've heard about this since the 70s. And there are tests coming up, by the way. They are doing a test soon. A lot of the cost of doing this is getting it out of the gravity well of the Earth. Correct. And so now you see why it's important that we have this material exactly. in space that you could then construct these. That's right. That one right there is about 7,400 tons. And that was John Mankin's design. That's an SPS Alpha, I think, 2. Uh, I think it's his second design. But again, it's very modular, can be made with robotics. So they could mass produce them as long as they have the mass in deep space. You put those into geosynchronous orbit. We could put thousands of them in geosynchronous orbit and beam terawatts of energy back to Earth. And that could help us remove CO2 because that's yeah. the big question. We see this with Climeworks and companies like that pulling CO2 out of the air. Where are you going to get sufficient 
clean energy to do that. And so geothermal is thought of sometimes. You don't do this kind of as you as as Starlink is being done, where you're launching these from the Earth and putting them up in orbit. Ideally, you would do you would start with harvesting materials in space, either on an yes. asteroid. At or this on the scale, yeah. you kind of have to because yeah. again, seventy four hundred tons that gives you about two gigawatts. Right. That you can beam back. Right. And if you want hundreds and hundreds of these that we're talking hundreds of thousands and millions of tons, you're going to want to do in situ resource utilization, either from a near Earth asteroid or from the surface of the moon. And that's where a mass driver comes in. It's a really exciting uh, future that you're envisioning. I just hope you're right. <laughs> because if we don't do this, uh, it's going to be difficult. I mean, but notice the feeling you have, right? It, it is a hopeful thing. And it's yeah. also not BS. It isn't it, in yeah. the sense that. It exists. It, and Gerard K. O'Neill wrote about this in The High Frontier. Uh, Peter Glazer. These were scientists who, and NASA has checked out the economics of it. It's just a matter of getting the working mass, which is why that's called critical mass. Because right. it is critical. It's also a critical mass of opinion to support this right. here on Earth. Right. Political will to do it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and do it soon before it's too late, really. I yeah. mean, we don't have a lot of time. We not, don't. It's not the launch window is the problem. It's getting the political will to do yeah, this. Exactly. Yeah, we have about 10 years to get started. And the good thing about it, though, is I think it would bring us together around the world. There's a tremendous opportunity for economic growth as well. We're talking with Daniel Suarez about his new book, Critical Mass, which uh, standalone is just fine. It's on Audible. It's on Amazon. It's in your bookstore. Dutton is the publisher. Uh, Jeff Gerner, who has read all of your books, reads this yes, one. Has. Again, it's He's nice great. to have Jeff. In fact, if, if, you, if you want a real thrill... Uh, I think maybe it was the second time we interviewed Daniel. I think so. On triangulation, he brought Jeff with him. That's right. And to hear Jeff suddenly go into that voice and hear the story, it gave me <laughs> chills. It was, it was really. It was exciting. a little freaky for me too. It was. It's weird to hear. To, wait a minute, that's the voice I hear. <laughs> so, when you started writing science fiction, was it with the idea of changing the world? Yeah, was it was it that much of a megalomaniac that, that I am? Uh, I suppose that's probably the reason in some way people write novels. is If not change the world, they want to communicate something they're feeling. And that definitely was the case with Damon, my first novel. It was because I was, I was laboring behind the scenes, designing elements of, let's say, the infrastructure private infrastructure of the world, uh, corporations, how they move things about that had an outsized impact on how people lived. And I wanted more people to be aware of how it worked and what its vulnerabilities were. You know what's were. going on under, under the hood. And of. what might be done to rectify that. Yeah. And so I actually entertained the idea of doing like a white paper for a time. <laughs> then I realized, you know, I've always wanted to write a novel. Yeah. Why don't I write a novel? And then it just took on a life of its own. So it took me about two years and then I couldn't find a, a literary agent. And then I, I, eventually self-published it and it turns out it was right people were interested in it yeah no kidding and it took <laughs> off that's kind of exciting that's the new world isn't it of publishing you don't have to pound the pavement and knock on doors until yeah. you find somebody to put this in book form you could do it yourself you find your own audience yeah. and when you found your audience then literary agents and others come to you and it then if you want to go that mainstream you, you can you don't necessarily have to you can you can roll your own career right. and do it however you want so you always had a mission. You were always the town crier. You I were guess always... I. I guess I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, I. Very concerned about the future in the way that I'm just convinced there's the future could be amazing. Yeah. Because 
that was another really one of the catalysts for writing this is that, and this is going back eight years that I've wanted to write these books. I kept thinking as I watched shows placed four, five hundred, or a thousand years in the future, there's all these spaceships and all for the celestial civilization. It's like, how do we get there? Like, no joke. How do we, from standing where I am here in the present, step by step, no hand waving, how do we get there? And that's what I'm trying to answer. And so it was trying to answer that question for me. I didn't know what the answer was. Uh, perhaps initially I was thinking Mars colonization would be cool. And of course, as you indicated, I've changed on that. It, it does not make any sense. It's funny. Us. Andy Weir was on talking about one of his books and he said, you don't want to go to Mars. Yeah. It is yeah. hostile. Yeah. Antarctica is very cozy compared yeah. to Mars. You do not want to try to live on Mars. Yeah. And we have pressing work to do here. Well, we, and, and even if we did want to live on Mars, there's intermediate steps. And, and that's exactly those. what this is. We have to start with those. Yeah. It's really brave of you. I think a lot of speculative fiction is uh, a lot of hand-waving, a lot of deus ex machina. Well, we have faster than light now. Yep. We, oh, and exactly. by the way, we'll need faster exactly. than light communication, of course. Yep. And uh, and let's see, there's 13 alien species. <laughs> that's right. We haven't killed each other. <laughs> I mean, it's fun, and I enjoy reading it. Um, it's a different thing. It's a different thing. And I yeah. like the idea of, without getting preachy, talking about what could happen yeah. with what we've already, where we are today, where we could be tomorrow. That's it's right. Very, it's very, but it's also brave of you, as you point well, out. I mean, you're taking big chances. So far, you've been, you've been right on. Well, okay, I'll do that too. <laughs> I will say that uh, I, I do take my lumps and that's part of it. Um, the other thing is that I have various characters. I try to accurately portray the points of view of the various parties. Yeah, that's the big challenge right now. It's, it a poli- it's really a political challenge. Yeah. It's not a scientific challenge, as you point yeah. out. We've invented the technologies. We know Long what we ago. need to do. Yeah, what are our political priorities? What are our economic priorities? Because yeah. really, if you think about it, if we're going into space, and when I say we, humanity, and we're in the process of doing that now, what value system are we bringing there? What legal system? What political system? What economic system? And this is happening in real time. And whatever we set up there, there is going to uh, be inertia to change it after the fact. So I really wanted to explore this before we're doing this in earnest. Humans don't have a great history of forward thinking planning. (laughs) It is, but we're still here (laughs) somehow. (laughs) Somehow we've survived just kind of Doing what happens, doing what feels good, and see what happens. Throwing the chips in the air. Things have, have gotten better and better slowly. It doesn't seem it like uh, quite a bit of the time. And they're, let's call it punctuated equilibrium, but sometimes there's a shock. You're a, you're yeah. a believer in Steven Pinker's notion that... That might be pushing it. I think that <laughs> might be a little Pollyanna-ish for me. Uh, I don't think things are getting constantly better. They're getting worse for some people. Yes, that's and other people. And you want to try to move that big fat... Part of the uh-huh. the uh, you know the bell curve, the Move bell curve, a little to the right. Include as many people as possible. Yeah, I like that. I really and, like, and that's that. why I'm I'm not, for example, a proponent of of degrowth. I think there is a very bad track record in history of trying to shrink things yeah. peaceably, because invariably people are going to defend whatever piece of the pie they already have. And and I think Gerard K. O'Neill talked about this in his book High Frontier. This is 1976, a nonfiction book, when he was saying it is partly our responsibility to be able to lift all boats. The, the idea, if we can obtain more resources and energy to help everyone in the world get to a better place. And that was just such a positive message for me. It really stuck mm-hmm. with me. I read that book when I was a young, uh, like a boy, I was like mm-hmm. 10. Mm-hmm. And it stuck with me my entire life uh, as a really decent and also difficult, adventurous thing to do that would bring us together. 
And that's why I, in this story I have a, an international cast of characters trying to do this. Some of them are very self-interested and not interested in the world, but yet they're out there participating right up with anybody, everyone else, and they learn to rely on each other. I don't want people to think this is a preachy book because it's no, not. No, it is not. Yeah, believe me, there's all types in this book. Yeah, and there's some really fantastic set pieces. I love the dirigible flight to Lagos. That is, <laughs> that is am- I hope that comes true. Oh, I would love to do that. <laughs> They take a balloon because uh, uh, you, jet flight is environmentally, yes. frighteningly costly. So is there at a least private way? jets? At least private jets, yeah. and we're starting to see some of that. People recording tail numbers, you yeah, know, yeah. and shaming yeah. people in you social media. You actually, it's amazing because you are prescient because you mentioned that. It's so in weird. Here. And then, you know, I'm sure long after you wrote this, we've got Elon Tail Tracker and yep. all of that. Yeah, it was. It was about maybe eight or nine months after that, and I was like, oh wow. I hit the I hit the nail on that one. Yeah. Does that happen a lot for you? You go, hey, I got I, that. You know, it's it it happens more than I think it would. It's good. Uh, I I know usually when I'm invited to do scenario spinning by various organizations, like okay, I must have gotten something right. Uh, but <laughs> I, you don't think of yourself as a futurist. I try to avoid that because it's not primarily what I'm doing. Um, I I tend to think personally, maybe futurists would be offended by this. I tend to think of that as sort of guessing at the future or making some prognostication about it when really I'm going to be even even more, uh, I don't know, egocentric. I'm trying in some ways to put some spin on the ball. I'm trying to affect the future. I want to inspire people in some way to maybe see something they hadn't thought of. And I I feel that I succeed in that when I get emails from people saying, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I'm not typically interested in these things, but I get it now. And especially when I'm getting more and more emails having done Delta V and now Critical Mass from young people saying, I want to study astronautical engineering now. And it's because they can see a through path to a future they want to live in and they want to try to help make that happen. That makes me so happy. It's funny because I think... uh in the early days of science fiction, it was kind of looked down upon. It was pulp fiction. It was an analog sure. magazine. And it was, you know, uh, the crazy illustrations of Martians on the That's right. on, 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 on all of that. Uh, but what we now know is that so many of our scientists and our great thinkers were inspired by that speculative fiction of the 50s and the 60s. Yes. And it turns out science fiction writers have an outsized impact on the direction society takes. I think it goes both ways. It's a feedback loop. And Alexander McDonald is the uh, chief economist for NASA. He has a TEDx talk on this, of the symbiotic relationship. So it's a great talk. I recommend you check it out. It, where he talks about, I think it, it's starting back as early as the 1600s, some of the first science fiction that was written. About, Jules Verne? Or, it, well, even before, before then. then. I, and I cannot remember the gentleman's name, but yeah. he wrote a book about a guy strapping himself to geese and going to the moon. <laughs> so we're talking a ways back. But but what? who was inspired by that book was Jules Verne and people wow. like that who started to get ideas. So it's been... And, so it, and then it goes back and forward and back and forward. And when you see... I won't give away some of the things he reveals in terms of its connection to what the Apollo mission was yeah. and one of the earlier stories and the similarities they had, it's really interesting. So I guess we help each other. We try to... Yeah. to uh, but, you, I mean, Elon Musk even says, I'm, I'm inspired by the science fiction. I read it as a kid. Yeah. And that's where these ideas, for many of his ideas, that's where these ideas come from. Yeah. So you are, in a way, writing uh, that white paper. Yes. Uh, Hopefully more entertaining. It's than much more paper. entertaining. Um, and it's kind of interesting. 
Um, I want to tell people who want to participate uh, that we want you to participate. Uh, there's several ways to do that. If you're watching live, you can in our IRC, you can ask questions of Daniel there. If you're in our club, uh, we also want to make this a club event. So our club twit discord members can ask questions via text, but you can also, uh, there's a link in the club twit event channel uh, that you can use to zoom in to us. There it is. Aunt just posted it once again. Join our Cloud HD video meeting so that we can hear from you directly. And once you're in there, uh, raise your hand and I'll... <laughs> it's very orderly here. Raise your hand and I will uh, call on you. Um, so we mentioned uh, satellites beaming energy from the Earth. Uh, we mentioned asteroid reclamation. Mm -hmm. Is that, a, is that a, a well understood technology right now? Is that something we'd know how to do? It, it seems it, like that's something Elon should be working on instead of going to Mars. Well, you know, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I won't speak for him on that, but... He's distracted know, right now, unfortunately. He, yeah, they had that, that uh, rocket test uh, yesterday, was it? Yeah, they're having trouble with the... <laughs> the there were mushrooms growing in the engine. Of, you know, that uh, happens. Starship. Uh, that ha These things happen. It's they Florida. Do. It's humid. That's um, why you have to do it. You have to try it. It's <laughs> Florida, exactly. Uh, <laughs> All right, hold, no, it must have been Texas. It been, oh, it was probably it, with yeah. Boca Chica or somewhere. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, there's. Uh, it's hard. Space is hard. Yeah. And I think actually what happened with Starship is his attention wandered. And as a result, it kind of started to Gee. fall apart. <laughs> so pay attention, okay? Yeah. So uh, step one, what would you say step one should be from right now where we are to head to this future that you're describing in critical mass? I, I, in bold strokes, I would say we need to go back to the moon. And we do need, I think, to build a, what's called a mass driver on the moon, which is a means to propel without using propellant to to fire using an electromagnetic electromagnetic railgun. I love this thing you described. Well, it's this is again a real design and and it is essentially an unrolled electric motor. You know, an electric motor has a series of magnets. In this case you're using high power magnets and you're you're propelling a mass down a barrel using that. It's like a railgun. It's not quite the same technology, but that's probably similar to what most people would be familiar with from sci-fi. And because the moon has no atmosphere, you can accelerate it. I think it's to like 2.5 something kilometers per second. So this mass driver needs to be a, a kilometer or two long. You, it needs to be very uh, hardy mass. In other words, it needs to be fairly solid. You accelerate it really fast and you can hurl it literally off of the moon. And if you place that mass driver in the right spot and if you hurdle it into orbit at just the right speed, you can send it up to L2, which is beyond the moon where you could place an, a space station that has a refinery. A giant catcher's yeah. mitt. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Almost all of the energy will have been expelled by the time it, it gets there. It floats there. So you just kind of, they actually, from the 60s, they, uh, 70s, they designed a spinning cone craft, which <laughs> would intercept it as it comes by and put it, and then they would just absorb it. And then they would start to process it. So you could, you could obtain millions of tons of working mass from there, which you could then turn into oxygen. A lot of people don't realize that the regolith of the moon is about 42% on average pure oxygen. Isn't that amazing? And yeah. then, of course, you have aluminum, titanium, you have iron, you have all of these various You go to resources. a part of the moon where there's two meters deep of this soft, easily harvestable regolith. About four times finer than talcum powder. Yeah. So you don't want to breathe it. 
you, yeah, you don't want to live it there. It will go right you into your bloodstream. Yeah, kill you immediately. You breathe it. But yeah. you scoop it up, you, you pitch it into space to the L2 point. That's right. And from there, do you start building the satellites together? Yes. Because at, at L2, again, this is an, a, an equal pull. It's a, easy to get just about anywhere from L2 or L1. Uh, with a little propulsion, you could bring it down towards geosynchronous orbit, which is about 22,000 uh, miles from Earth. And whatever you place in that orbit will remain over the same spot in Earth. And so geosynchronous orbit has many satellites already, but you could also wow. put those satellites and sort of rack them onto these big satellites as you start to fill. Now, I remember reading, and I, I want to get this right, it's about 355 terawatts of energy we could create if we fully populated the geosynchronous orbit with these satellites. We don't need to do anything That's more than we use that. right now, yes, right? Yes, yes. It's like 2.2. Two terawatts. I think we're like using. Oh boy, I probably should have refreshed it's in my the memories. book. I know. It's, <laughs> I know. I wrote it in the book, but trying to remember. I think it's like ten terawatts of energy. But by the year of of this, I think it might be up to twelve. But anyway, 12, Google okay. it. You'll you'll find it. It's easily found. So, so it's that more is than enough. Many many times yeah. more than yeah. what we're using now, and so we don't need to populate it so heavily. So if we start, and to that do solves that, a lot of problems on Earth initially, including carbon sequestration, yes, which is correct. kind of interesting. You point out that we're already so far down the road of carbonizing our atmosphere that we need to actually to survive. Yes, pull it out. Yeah, we do need to pull it out, and and that's the other thing is. Uh, I think it's not fully appreciated that if we stopped emitting carbon, uh, CO2, uh, greenhouse gases today, it's going to continue. It would to go. continue to warm for decades and yeah. decades because of the thermal properties of CO2. So as the sunlight comes in, it retains more of it uh, in the infrared spectrum, and so we'll continue heating. There's the other, also a add-on effects like the melting of the permafrost, which puts, which could release methane, which is even a worse. A lot more. Yeah. yeah. So the, you know, it's a it's a cascade. But we can, we can, we could, if we had the will, yep. reverse it. Or before. even, let's just put it this way: even just the naked greed to make greed money is do good this. In this case, in this case, yeah, I, I want to try to direct people. Say, you want to make a trillion dollars? Do this yeah. because being able to bring that amount of energy to bear. Uh, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson he mentioned that the first trillionaire might be a, sure. a an asteroid miner. Sure, but you know, you're talking about truly mammoth scale in terms of resource. Uh, extraction. And and again, you, you don't want to scar the moon. You don't have to. Uh, you can do it in a way. Oh, scar the moon. Who cares? Oh, well. <laughs> Make a few more mares. What do we... <laughs> it's a romantic thing. The okay, don't the scar sky. the moon. Yeah. Do it on the backside. <laughs> you actually, you actually, uh, it's funny, you say, well, the U.S. and the Chinese are fighting over the poles. They're having a an active debate, yeah. let's say. An active debate. So, Let's go somewhere else. Yes. Let's just leave that to them. But, you know, it's interesting. You bring that up. That is from the book. Uh, you know, uh, Nathan Joyce, he's thinking, I'm going to go to the equator of the moon. And that is because that is the precise spot where you need to place that mass driver. Turns and, out and in that's the, book, the better spot. And it's the exact spot. And this is coming again from NASA plans. I love These this. were papers that people had done and were never built, this. obviously. So we know a lot of this stuff. We know a lot of it. Uh, somebody's going to get, maybe many are going to get very rich. I'd be so happy for them if they Meanwhile, did. Jeff Bezos is building his penis rocket to launch celebrities <laughs> to low earth, to low atmosphere. What, yeah. do you just bring this book to them and go, read the book? Yeah, see, I don't think I could start beating them with the read book. Read the yeah. book! They have bodyguards. What's so. keeping them from, uh, yeah, look, I know you do a ton of research and you've mentioned I before do. that 
the success of these books has given you access to people that you you know are really high up and involved in this is do you get the sense that they get it and they're and they're and they were moving in this direction or are they just ignoring what is it i mean it's obvious at this point what's inevitable i don't think they're ignoring it i think a lot is coming at them every second um i they're not focused on what needs to be done I, I would go to – I get invited to to certain uh, events because of these books, and some of those people, you know, some billionaires and others are are fans of my books. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy about that. So I get invited to some unusual events. Uh, one of them – and I, I won't mention which one it is. It was, a, it was Saifu. So there are a lot of people go to it. That yep. much I'll mention. But while I was there, I was walking with a billionaire, and after talking with him for two hours, I was exhausted not by him <laughs> – but All by the stuff. sheer number of people who were coming at him yeah. every single yeah. minute with an urgent business plan or something yeah. to do or invest in. Yeah. And this was in a closed environment. And it gave me a better appreciation for what it must be like to be like that. You are you are literally like a, a black hole drawing yeah. all sorts of things in you constantly, no matter what you do. So a lot <sighs> vying for their attention. And also we've seen that uh, that kind of money and success can kind of change a person. Sure. And change your focus. Sure. Um, I don't, it, but government's not going to do this either. They're just as distracted. Well, it's interesting you say that. I, I talk to a lot of people in NASA and elsewhere. So many of them are committed to this type of thing. They want to do this, but then there's also the bureaucratic nature of that organization yeah. because of the way it's funded. Uh, it's, yeah, people marketing at, has become the most important job of NASA. And, and yeah, and they're doing a great job at it. Yeah, you look but, some of it, but here's the thing. I know. It, what are they spending? It's not really the job. That's the sad thing. But it is the job to get their funding. And again, I'm funding. not even going to defend it. You are correct. However, I look at SLS and people say, oh my God, it's taking forever. It took James Webb, oh, it took forever. James Webb is amazing. What a success. What story. a success. That actually gave me so much hope. Oh, because Christmas we could Day do gift, that. boy, that was fantastic. Yeah. But this nation, the United States, does need a national rocket. We do need our own way to get to space. And the other thing is the way they do that, the uh, development and building of those rockets, it's not the way NASA necessarily wants to do them. It's how Congress it's and Senate saying, they, I want a plant exactly. to build this spaceship <laughs> in my district. Exactly. And as a result, you're building the uh, SLS in 34 in 30, different locations all over the country. That's right. It's not how you build it. That's not That's how. Right. That's not how it's set. Now, do you think the Chinese, given their focus and their you know totalitarian nature, maybe will succeed where See, we fail? I think they that goes. It errs in the other way. In that nobody in in an autocratic system where people are afraid of the leader, they might not say things are wrong or yeah. bring up some. So it's the opposite problem. Yeah. Um, I think we need somewhere to make in the, Elon Musk the president of China, and then <laughs> my, no, I'm not even touching that. Don't even go there. <laughs> We're talking to Daniel Suarez, the author of Critical Mass. It is a great read, but there is a lot of good stuff in here. And I hope politicians and billionaires and the people who need to hear this read it because we need them to get it together. We have a question from our club. Is it? Uh, do we? Who is it? Uh, uh, and I don't. I don't James, see that. I can't read the name. It's so distant. James, James, come on down. There he is, with his license plates on the wall. James, unmute your mic me? and say hello. Hi guys. Welcome to Daniel Suarez. James, where are you? Thank where are you, you. calling Thank from you. today? I'm calling in from outside Philadelphia. Go Eagles. 
Oh, I was going <laughs> to ask Daniel who he's uh, rooting for tomorrow or day after tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, right. who you got, Daniel? Who do you think? Are you a football fan? He can't hear. You got to turn the bleed oh, on. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, he can't hear I me. Can yeah, see. Okay. He wanted to, no, that's all right. We're going to make it work, James. But uh, he was asking if you're a football fan. And, you know, I used to be, and yeah. then years ago I just – sort of fell out of the habit and replaced it with other things. And, yeah. and then when I get pulled into writing, I disappear literally for two years. You don't have time to watch <laughs> yeah. silly I games. used to enjoy I was. I don't want to say silly. I just, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I spend my time in, in different things these days. It's but. an interesting point, though, is that we don't yet get that we're in a crisis, a global mm. crisis. And by the time we wake up to that, it may be too late. Yeah. And instead, we're distracting ourselves to death. We're 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 allowing ourselves to be sidetracked. Sure. So, um, I by the way, to that I'd also add, there's also this tremendous opportunity. So, if we act in time, the future could be amazing. The optimist, this man. But this comes out of the research I've done, and that's I, I didn't know whether I was going to be pessimistic or optimistic, having done all this research, but. I just feel like it's right there. I just feel like shaking people we're, and saying, "That's what future. I mean." Hit them with the book. Okay, I guess you're right, James. <laughs> have you read any of Daniel's books? <laughs> yeah, uh, all I asked was uh, equals our Chiefs, and we ended up with that. But, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, by the way, by the way, <laughs> Chiefs, like Chiefs are going to win. It's I know sure, you. I know, Chiefs. and uh, the Eagles beat the heck out of our 49ers. Can't you just, deserve yeah, you guys show up, man. That you deserve that. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> But I think it's going to be a, a tough game, Sunday though. for you. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> continue yeah. on. Um, yes, I did. I actually just finished Delta V. I saw this pop up on the club oh, calendar. Awesome. I thought I got to cool. catch up. Thank so, you. Awesome. Oh, I loved it. it was really Isn't it great? great? Um, it's a really good book. Yeah. And this, you know, follows right on, you know? It does. Picks I, up I'm, I'm so excited because yeah. yeah, there cool. were some things in Delta V that weren't quite They're closed. And I'm like, is there going to be another one? So I was happy to see that. You're in luck. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm so happy. Um, my question is actually related to Delta V. One of the things that I love about sci-fi uh, is when the topics and the technology are close to what we have in real life. Um, uh, for example, in Delta V, the honeybees I read at the end of the book are actually based on a real technology yes. um, being developed by a company. Is it difficult to find uh, commercial companies that are willing to share that kind of detail? Because i got to imagine there's some proprietary stuff involved that maybe they don't want to uh, release too soon for fear of losing money. That's a great question. So uh, shall I repeat the question just or No, everybody else okay, heard everybody it. Everybody heard yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. When I do research, it helps to some degree that I'm writing a novel. That tends to tamp down whatever concerns people have because I'm not going to do an article in, let's say, Wired Magazine in a week and a half. Uh, they know it might be a year or two. And, you know, the way they're they're – doing their development, they might have something coming out or getting patented in six months. So that helps a little. Uh, but the other thing is I, I've encountered a lot of innovators who, first of all, see what my enthusiasm is, that I'm sort of, I want them to succeed. I'm not going to misrepresent what they're doing, but I want this to happen and they want this to happen. So in some ways we're kindred spirits. And I think that comes across when you're dealing with uh, people one-on-one. So the pandemic made that a little difficult at times because I couldn't quite go see or get a tour of their facility. But as it loosened up a bit, I did. Fortunately for Delta V, that happened before the pandemic. And so, you know, when you uh, talk about the, the, the companies involved in that, I was able to go see them and meet with them. And it didn't turn out to be a problem. They were happy to share. I think to some, some degree we're going to name Daniel Suarez our ambassador to the future. 
Oh, I like that. Because uh, people like him. They love his novels in every at every level, and they know him. And he's bringing a message of hope. Yeah. And a very practical message of hope. Not some pie in the sky, we're going to build domes on the yeah. moon. Yeah. Message. And no BS, remember? No yeah. BS. Yeah. And, and maybe they might get inspired to say, yeah, we need to do this. That's right. And and remember that that reciprocal process between the engineers who build and the sci-fi writers, and we inspire each other. Yeah. And it keep going higher and higher and higher. It's the first time I've had any hope at all for the human future in, in about four years. So well, good. I'm glad. Wonderful. <laughs> He's our ambassador of hope. <laughs> uh, James, does that answer your question? Yeah, that was fantastic. Thanks. It's great I to have so read the Critical Mass. Thanks for being cool. in the club. Cool. We appreciate it. He's Thanks, a Unix. Guys. Are you a Unix sysadmin? I see a Unix book behind you there. Uh, only when I'm forced to. <laughs> so is 2038 giving you, uh, like, is it triggering you as you read the book? Oh, I hope to be retired on my private <laughs> island by then. Not my problem. It's so <laughs> funny. When I, saw, when I saw it was 2038, I, I knew Daniel did that on purpose, right? You don't. Oh, uh, make... it's the trajectory. So what can I tell oh, you? Oh, you can't choose it no, because it's no. the date that we it's have. This, uh, well, it's four ruthless. years before we have to launch. Yes. It's a ruthless celestial clock. Right. And right. so, so yeah. that so that's what's kind of cool about this book is the clock is ticking. Yes, it is. And this team has four years to until get until the asteroid comes around again. Right, they have to be ready, and they have to really drastically accelerate human achievement in space before then to have any chance of getting their colleagues. So, James, just for you, I'm going to root for the Eagles on Sunday. Okay. <laughs> oh, thanks, Leo. That'll make a difference. <laughs> fly Eagles, fly. Well, Odok is a big Eagles fan too. We had a little bit of jawbone and going back and forth when it was the Eagles and Niners. So. Oh uh, yeah, I bet. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All, right. Hey, All right. Thanks, thanks James. Guys. Appreciate the appreciate Hi. the question. Do we have any more uh, questions from? Uh, I have a question from uh, used up in our IRC. He says, "Is this a series of books?" A it series. Is. It's a trilogy right now. Now, yeah. will it grow from there? Um, maybe. I'm not sure. I do know that it's a trilogy now, a planned trilogy. Now, I'm working on a third book. Uh, I want it to again be that that bridge, if you will crossing that chasm between our present and that celestial civilization in the future. So as Daniel yeah. says, you don't, this does stand alone. You don't have to read Delta V, but Delta V is the first in the series. And actually it's a great read. I don't see why you wouldn't get Delta V read that just as James did. And then now that critical mass is out, read this. It's one of the things, uh, John and I, uh, constantly bemoan is we get involved in these trilogies and the book stops and we have to wait a year or two. Yeah. The next one, yeah, Game of Thrones comes to mind. Uh, yeah, Game of Thrones series, comes anyway. to mind. So you're actually in good shape now because you got two to read. Yes, this book took me a bit longer than usual because I had some other things going on, and then into the mix was the pandemic, which threw a spanner in the works for my research. You for a meet little. with people. Well, that was part of it, and so then it was Zoom, and you know you just don't have that it's same the same social you, connection. Daniel, bless his heart, wanted to be in studio with us, yeah. and Daniel and Michelle came up, and we're going to go to lunch afterwards. And uh, we're just going to pretend there's no pandemic and everything's That's fine. That's right. <laughs> I've, I've received every shot it's, I can. It's over, as have I. <laughs> uh, I do notice, by the way, and I don't know if this is in, real in publishing or not, that your name has moved from below. The, it's get, the, the name gets bigger as the books are successful, right? <laughs> Pretty soon it's a Daniel Suarez novel. You know, if you take a look at my books over time, they move, they expand in well, font, now they you're change above font, the title, and, but it's I, smaller. But it's, but it's beneath New York Times bestselling author. I, it, you know what it is? It's always a fascinating conversation whenever <laughs> you get into cover. 
And boy, have you ever wind, want to wind up an author? Ask them what they think about their covers. Uh, well, okay. Uh, I don't want to wind you up, per se. I'm Tell me about the Delta V. Uh, this is a painting. And yes. it is not, by the way, an artificial intelligence painting. No, no, it is not. It's a real painting. No, pain. this, uh, again, what I was trying to get at there, and I, sh- I should say that I'm very thankful, actually, Dutton does include me in the they conversation talk- Is that for James cover. Ty down there uh, in his cave? That is James Ty, but that's Earth. And what we wanted was a concept. James Ty, JT, is a, a protagonist. He's the beginning protagonist in I, Delta V. He's one v. of your best characters, by the way. I well, love Ty. Based, a composite person based on people that I've met and knew. Oh, interesting. I actually Maybe was that's why it's so a real. childhood friend with an extreme caver who knew a gentleman named Bill Stone, and, and probably people in your audience are familiar with him. He is uh, a, the CEO of, uh, I think I believe it's now defunct Shackleton Energy, which was a oh. lunar mining company. But oh. Bill also built his own rebreathers and is an extreme cave diver. He will go 3,000 feet underground to then begin diving in a cave and go deep. It's the most dangerous and extreme diving you can do. And he built his own rebreather. I mean, this guy is hardcore. And JT is not quite like that, but he is definitely an adventurous person. And I found that I love extreme him. cave divers are sort of the, sort of the, uh, I want to say the the tribe of people you want to go out and do yeah, things. Yeah, you were going to pick. That's one of the things that was fun about Delta V is who they picked yeah. to go out on this first asteroid mining that's mission. That's right. Extreme really, mountain climbers yeah. and, and, and former taikonauts and cave divers. And in the case of a cave diver, they need to understand intuitively pressure and how the body metabolizes gases at different pressures. So he innately is well suited to operating in space. And so this cover starts on the surface of the earth in a cave, but with a view to space. Now, it's funny because uh, in the chat room, we've posted the German cover uh, of Delta V. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's James Ty on a rock. He's out. Yeah. He's out so, on Ryu. It's not Ryugu. Oh, you know, I I do love Roalt. I love them. They've been a terrific publisher. We had some discussions about <laughs> That's not Ryugu. About the igneous rock that someone is inexplicably <laughs> standing upon in low in- Earth orbit. <laughs> in Earth orbit. The antithesis oh, well. of what occurs in the book, which is a way to go, yeah. I guess. Now, this one's interesting because it's the moon. Yes. This is Critical Mass's cover. Now, this actually, actually, Michelle sort of conceived of this, and I immediately thought, perfect. It, this is, again, we wanted a human element, just the beginning of a human element, which is Clark Station, and then the moon, which is, of course, the critical mass in question. But it is, again, metaphorical because, of course, we want a critical mass of public opinion to realize how important this mass Very is. Very good. And we are so fortunate. Earth is incredibly fortunate that we have the moon so it's close at hand. It's sitting there waiting for us. But it's also protected us for you yeah. know millions and billions of years from stray uh, rocks. We're learning more and more how much the moon takes, it's the, incredible. takes the hit yeah. for us. So and that and Jupiter helping us out. Yeah. So we are extremely fortunate. But this may be our gateway to space is you know near-Earth asteroids first. And then you take some of those resources to go to the moon. Now, you could do the moon first, but it's going to take a bigger investment up front. I think the, I think you've got it just right. Yeah, good. Go get Ryugu. Yeah. It's, it, we've already been there. Well, there's also another probe that NASA is putting up, an observatory. And I, John, I'm sorry if I get this wrong. I think it's NEOWISE. It's going up in 2025. John will know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm operating on just my, my local RAM here. <laughs> but... Uh, that is going to be an observatory to try to uh, chart all of the near-Earth objects. And if, by looking in infrared, near-infrared, it's going to be able to see them. Now, we think there are half a million of these near-Earth objects Plenty. of various size. We believe there's none larger than a kilometer. 
And that would be like an extinction level event for right. at least we part of us. Right, we don't want to hit us, yeah. And a lot of these are, are they're in, they cross Earth's orbit, and the ones we're totally blind to right now are the ones that come from the direction of the sun. And you'll see this occasionally when you look at the news. Because you can't see them. Oh, we just discovered a rock. Right, that, where did that, that come from? There it is. breezed right Neowise. close to us. Yeah. Oh, there we go. I got it you right. You got it Good. right. Uh, I, there's so many spaceships in my head right it's now. It's actually cool that we are doing all of this. It feels like we're in a renaissance of space exploration. I truly believe that. And and we Hallelujah. just need, we need more and more people, both billionaires and government officials who vote on these things, as well as the general public to realize we really are on sort of the brink of a golden age if we make the right decisions. So we're, we're at, a, I'd say, a fork in the road. One way is a crisis and one way is a golden age. And I don't need to tell you which one I would prefer we choose. I really like that point. We are yeah. literally at yes. that fork in the road. We are that we, generation that other generations will point back to and say, yeah. oh, they were amazing. They made the right choice or, or oh, those extinction event. Yeah. Um, so you, it, it's funny because you talked about this in um, on your interview in This Week in Space. Everybody who reads science fiction assumes that spin gravity is just, well, that's, of course, everybody... Nobody's done it yet. It's incredible. <laughs> Nobody's done it yet. You you just think, well, surely they're doing that on ISS or something. No. No. They had a plan to do so. And and that's the other thing is the more researchers I talk to and scientists, it's funny. All of these, when I go through the sort of the library of abandoned projects, uh, all, all I would say to a sci-fi writer, my God, that's just a cornucopia. Because if you look at all the things that were conceived of, even designed, look at the asteroid return mission. They started building prototypes, I think, at JPL, and then it was defunded. And so, you know, I wanted to use that, and I used that in uh, Delta V for the Grasshopper unit. Well, that was based upon a real asteroid retrieval mission. And by the way, I have to make this clear. When I say asteroid mining, I do not mean bringing those resources back here to Earth. That's so important. It's so important. That would be a mistake. Yeah. You leave it where it's most valuable, at the edge of Earth's gravity well, where you can start to build things out there. And then once you build a space station and an industrial infrastructure out there, you can go just about anywhere in the solar system easily. Here's the problem. That's a long-term prospect. Sure. Because you don't start re- re- you know, getting the returns until you're well down the road yeah. of building it's stuff. A few and years, all this stuff. yeah. Uh, and if I just bring it home, I can sell it. <laughs> so. But then the economics make no sense. Yeah. You know, I, there's expensive. certain things. I mean, yeah. you know. If there's gold on them. On see, those. even if there's gold, yeah. you really have to, again, closely look at your spreadsheet to say, is that yeah. still going to make sense? Right. You know, platinum. Because, again, there is, I can't remember the name of the asteroid, but uh, it might be Psyche. That contains like a quintillion dollars worth of stuff. And I always like to point out, unless you brought it back here. Because yeah. if you brought if you brought a moon-sized piece of platinum back to Earth... It loses its value. It will now be as common as tin. Yeah. Or maybe less... It loses its value. Yeah, more common than tin. You have, you've, 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 you've killed the supply of So demand. it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> However, if you utilize space. those out in space, you can build extraordinary things. And that's the other thing. That what I'd is like the turnaround say. time? For... for let's say uh, I today figured, uh, well, let's go to Ryugu. It's going to take us... We, you know, until uh, every asteroid is going to be different. Yeah. So, for but, example, in Delta V, it takes them 28 days to get there with a, with less energy than it would take to reach our own moon in the at December 13th, 2032. We got that exact trajectory. However, years. a year later, it would take two and a half years to get back and more. So it's all timing. Try to think of a. It's like one of these. Uh, Somebody's got to be clocks. Is somebody aiming like, okay, we got nine years. Let's get this going. Well, that's partly what I'm trying to inspire people to do. So if you happen to have an asteroid mining company, please read Delta V. Nine years. 
We the is it the Japanese who landed a probe on Ryugu? JAXA, yeah, that and they were very helpful. Uh, again, this would be another example of people I got in touch with. I believe I'm I'm going to say her name. Hopefully, she doesn't mind. Julie Bellarose at NASA helped connect me with the team at at JAXA, who was the Hayabusa two mission. So I didn't have a visual on Ryugu when I was writing the book, and instead it towards the end of writing it. It came into view, and so I was I was writing the book based on the spectral examination of what it was composed of. Fortunately, it turned out to be correct, and the size and mass of it turned out to be correct. And what I was able to add was that equatorial, oh, sorry, that equatorial ridge uh, that was in the actual asteroid from it spinning. So, because really, these asteroids are very often just rubble piles. Yeah, and that's they're not even we, solid. They're not even solid. They're basically like a, a lump of gravel in space. So, I try to define that in the book that mining an asteroid is unlike any. Mining. You don't land on it and dig yeah. with a you, steam. You shovel. pull up next to it, <laughs> and you have to tease boulders off of it. It's sort of like just imagine trying to mine so, uh, a pile of gravel that's in free fall in a vacuum that's being blasted with radiation. You know, and, and it's alternately burning hot and ice cold uh, or below ice cold. And that's sort of the challenge you're facing. Doug M. in our uh, Discord uh, asks, and I hope this is not a painful question. All of your novels are so visual. I was sure by now there'd be a, a movie of Demon. Uh, what's the story, Morning Glory? Uh, Why of, aren't we, uh, have you, I know they've optioned these. Yes, uh, almost every book I've done, except for Kill Decision, it was interesting. Every every book just about I've done has been optioned, or at least I've been offered things. I haven't always said yes. Uh, to me, it is important that, again, I understand things can, wow, we're, we're keeping the Roalt cover up there. <laughs> That's, Don't that's can you scroll past me. that, Aunt? Because no, we, no, it's making it's making Daniel crazy. Like, why is it next to Earth? Anyway, <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I'm okay. <laughs> why is there a hunk of granite with uh, a guy on it? Right. And it's like an igneous rock. <laughs> and why is he standing on it? Uh, anyway, uh, sorry. What was the question? Uh, <laughs> uh, Netflix. Uh, oh yes, film production or yeah. TV production. I have uh, conversations. I'm approached fairly often about Damon as well. Uh, a number of scripts have been developed, probably five or six or seven at this point for various properties. Uh, but my books, I think, are somewhat of a challenge because they are science-based. Yeah. And when I say challenge, it doesn't it mean... They, the Martian. The Martian yeah, was science-based. That, to me, seems like it's a proof that people could, do people want realistic it. sci-fi, yeah. grounded sci-fi, as we yeah. call it. Yeah. And so, for whatever reason, uh, it, it just hasn't worked out. I, I would only say that... Hollywood tends to develop about 20 times the material. Oh, it's so hard to get a movie made. Versus what they produce. Yeah. And especially, we've just had a profusion of television uh, recently. Uh, so, for example, Delta V, you know, we talked to various parties, and you would get a response like, well, well, we already have a space show. And it's like, you, oh, hold Lord. it. It's space. <laughs> it's like, you don't need just one show. You know, you can have, but that's, that goes into this idea of what is science fiction and what is just fiction at this point. Right. There has to be a point at which a, because this is very realistic, where a space story is not, let's say, science fiction. It's just fiction because we're doing it. Yeah. So it's the same thing with cell phones. Like cell phones are in every single show, comedy, drama, whatever it is. It's just the background element, whereas they used to be some sort of unusual right. thing. I'm hoping at some point that just because something is in space doesn't mean it's primarily, oh, it's sci-fi space show. It's just how we live. That's where we need to get to. So my answer would be that I, I often speak with uh, Hollywood production uh, companies and studios about adapting my work. Uh, I'm still hopeful that that can be done. 
And I, I have a number of things in play now. We'll see what happens. I could just see a Hollywood executive saying, what the hell is a Lisa Joe circle? I don't understand. <laughs> That's an excellent imitation. <laughs> what are you? Lagrange, Lagrange. I don't, I don't get it. That's right. Just reverse the polarity. It'll be fine. <laughs> but do you have anti-gravity? Because we yeah. really need that. Oh, yeah. Different book. We right. figured out a way to make hair stick up. And it's really, uh, anyway, <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I shouldn't. I don't want, honestly, I don't want it to be made into a movie or a TV show because I'm always disappointed by sci-fi once it's made into something because my mind and your your incredible writing, my mind is building something so much better than any movie set could ever be. Well, that is the wonderful thing about the written word. It is. It's alive. James yeah. Ty is in my head. Yeah. And if you get Ryan Gosling to play him, it's going to destroy it for me. <laughs> it would be different. Uh, but again, the, the appeal there is that if you can reach a broader audience mess. with this, yeah. and I yeah. don't want to say message, let's say this this narrative, because it, it moves the Overton window. It moves the, right. if the frame of acceptable conversation of what we assume. Like if people start assuming we can, of course, make an amazing future, and this would be one way how, that completely changes how we engage. You've got to get it in future. people's minds that yeah. it's possible. Yeah. You've got to give them some urgency because we are at the you, crossroads. Exactly. You're exactly correct. Uh, and that there isn't a lot more time to prepare for yeah. this. And there's also a tremendous opportunity. So and even it, if you are a selfish bastard, you can jump in and get busy on this and you can make a huge amount of money and sort of as a side effect, help right. the world. I have to say, though, the one thing, people die in this. <laughs> people have misadventures, yes. Misadventures. And, you know, personally, I think there's no lack of people who would say, yeah, sure, fine, I'll well, do look it. Look at Mount and, Everest. People die yeah, on I'll Mount do, Everest yeah, almost every year. As a matter of fact, in one episode, I think seven people die yeah, that's a good going point. to Mount Everest. And so they're... I like to say that there are among us explorers and adventurers, and Absolutely. they have an evolutionary purpose. And they have always been the, the uh, pathfinders, the trailblazers, the people who chart the oceans. And we see them now jumping off of buildings and skydiving and racing cars. You want, you want they need adventure. a frontier. Yeah. And so that's what Nathan Joyce wanted to do. He wanted to give them a frontier. Yeah. And they will go out and do sort of what they are born to do anyway. Yeah. Gosh, I don't know how we can get the word out better. Is it's it's one of the things, and this is really clear in uh, Critical Mass, the latest book is this can't be an individual effort. It can't be just private industry. It can't be just government. Mm -hmm. It can't be our country yeah. alone. This is a global problem that needs a global solution. Well, this is why I had the Cislinder commodity exchange in this book be created and it's blockchain based it's it's because you want some transparency and you want people around the world to have an opportunity to participate in in, in it no matter what their means yeah. because otherwise you're going to have you're going to engender opposition because people are not going to want to think well they're going and they're going to take control of space for either nationalistic or personal reasons. And then it, it hardens hearts against this. And this is the exact opposite of what we need. We need more people embracing this. And so there has to be some aspect of it, let's say in the architecture, in the protocol of it, that makes it a bit more equitable. And yet there's so much upside, so yeah. much upside that I, I, I don't think that's going to uh, you know, convince people who want to really 
become hugely wealthy doing this. They will still become enormously wealthy even so. Yeah. But everybody else has to participate in it again so that they understand why, yeah. why this needs to be done. Uh, start by reading the books. Delta V is a, a great way to start, but you can read Critical Mass all by itself. Yeah. Just get both of them. <laughs> it is a, a better experience. Yes. <laughs> I, it's, re- it's really well worth getting both of them. In fact, I think both John and I went back and reread Delta V. Oh, that's great. To Thank get you. ready for Well, you would kindly I sent, did too. sent me a copy. And uh, yeah, well, you, you did too. You, got, you need more RAM. We got to upgrade that RAM. That's right. Uh, Daniel Suarez is a hero, right? And he's writing not only great fiction, but also uh, working to make the world a better place. And it's not preachy. I don't want to say it's preachy. What it is 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 inspiring. It's inspiring that we could do this, that we have the means, we have the technology, we just need the will. Um, And And some people have the will too. You just need to be able to help them get there to start things rolling. Elon, just get off that Twitter thing. You know, it's just distracting you. You just not. It's not. You need to focus, 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 man. Uh, Dutton publishes it. It just came out January thirty first. Uh, again, Jeff Gurner reads it on Audible. He does a great has job. All my books. Yep. Yep. As he does all of them. Uh, you know, if you haven't read Demon, you could just get the whole. Do you have a slipcase version of all of them? That's what I, I want. I like the way you're thinking. Get the Daniel Suarez bookshelf. Michelle, get Dutton on the phone. <laughs> start with, start with Demon, uh, and that will give you so much momentum. You'll get through the whole damn set right. in no time at all, and you'll end right here at Critical Mass, probably right at the point where Daniel's next volume maybe, comes out. Maybe, and you can keep the ball rolling. This is really, really a great book, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Daniel. Likewise, I am often when we do these triangulations disheartened mm-hmm. and 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 despairing of our future. You know. Uh, but it's nice to talk to somebody who gives us hope. Uh, and and not only just hope, something absolutely within our grasp. It's yes. so close. Yeah. If we could just do it. Um, Critical Mass is the book. Daniel Suarez is the author. Thank you, Daniel, for making this an extra special day. Oh, so wonderful to see you here. again, Leo. Yeah, it's great to see you. Thanks to everybody in IRC and our Discord for uh, joining us. Uh, thanks to you for joining us at home on uh, another great edition of triangulation see you next time hey we should talk linux it's the operating system that runs the internet but your game consoles cell phones and maybe even the machine on your desk you already knew all that what you may not know is that twit now is a show dedicated to it the untitled linux show whether you're a linux pro a burgeoning sysadmin or just curious what the big deal is you should join us on the club twit discord every saturday afternoon for news, analysis, and tips to sharpen your Linux skills. And then make sure you subscribe to the Club Twit exclusive Untitled Linux Show. Wait, you're not a Club Twit member yet? Well, go to twit.tv slash club twit and sign up. Hope to see you there.